me pray for us, church. Father, we just want to begin this year by confessing, God, how much we need you. God, if last year showed us anything, it showed us how fragile this world is, how fragile the things that we hold on to, the things that we find our hope in. God, would you cause us to recognize how much we need you, God, and how abundantly you supply, God, grace and love and joy and all that we long for, God. You are the source of all those things. God, would you cause our hearts, as we sang, God, cause us to believe your son is better, that pursuing Jesus, that loving Jesus, that running hard after your son, that it is always better for us. It's harder at times. It causes more pain for us at times. But God, it is always in the end better. And so would you cause our hearts to believe that, cause our hearts to trust that as we enter into a a new season, God, a new year, a new sermon series. God, would you show us what it means to love you, what it means to, God, run towards you with all of our might and to delight ourselves in you, God, and to find our joy and our hope in you. Father, we need you. Uh, God, we confess that. God, you know how much we need you. God, you know how you know how fragile and how frail we are, God. And so would you come and, God, comfort us and would you stir our affections for who you are, God, and what it means to know you. Um, God, if you need to rebuke us for some things, God, would you do that? If you need to comfort us, if you need to, um, God, just assure us, Father, you know right now what we need. So God, would you come now and uh, speak to us, God, use your word that, it, that you inspired, um, God, some 2,000 years ago, would you reach into our lives and create joy in life? God, do what we can't, do what no human can, uh, God, which is actually create life and joy in us. So Father, we, want to, we ask for your help, God. We've heard a lot of information this week. We've heard a lot of words this week. God, would you come now help us to hear your voice, um, God, and be comforted and find joy and life uh, in all these things through you. And we ask this in Jesus' great name, amen. Well, hey, good morning, church. Um, happy New Year. Uh, it's a brand new year. Thank God. Let's uh, just try this whole thing again and see, uh, see what happens uh, in this next year. So uh, we're launching a new series this morning. We're going to walk through our mission statement here. And so our mission here is, uh, it's pretty simple. Our mission is to love God, love uh, the church, love our city, and love the nations. And so we have four main loves here uh, is, how we, is how we say this. And so all that we do here is kind of built around those four uh, postures of love. So we're going to spend one week on uh, just each of those in this four, uh, four week or so series. So this morning uh, is the first one, which is our love for God. Uh, and so our love for God should be our highest love. Our ultimate um, affection is for God and for God alone. He is worthy um, of, of, of being loved with all of our might, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our God is worth uh, this kind of love from us. And so uh, to, be, to be human, um, you, you have to love something. Uh, and so there's, it's impossible for us not to love. Our hearts are never neutral. Uh, we're always reaching for something. We're always grasping. We're always, we're always going after something. Uh, we're always trying to find something to satisfy us, to kind of just kind of calm that, that ache and that gnaw in us. Why are we on Amazon so often? Um, some of you are there now probably. So we're, we're always searching for something, aren't we? Uh, maybe it's power. Uh, we just need to win and we just need to be on top. 
Uh, maybe it's beauty. We need to just be fit and to look good. Maybe it's um, control. We just want to manipulate certain situations and control outcomes, but we're always trying to uh, go after and uh, pursue something. Um, and here's what uh, James K.A. Smith, who's an author, has a book called You Are What You Love. Um, he says this, that we are essentially and ultimately desiring animals. I hope that encourages you, which is simply to say that we are essentially and ultimately lovers. To be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. And so all of us, we're always going after, we're always grasping and reaching for something. Our hearts are never, uh, they're never neutral. And so we have to be careful with what we love. Uh, the Bible calls us to guard our hearts with all, of our, uh, with all of our might. So you have to be careful with what you love, what your heart goes after. And the Bible tells us what should be our first and highest love, which is God himself. And so God commands us, God demands of us that there is no one uh, that is above him, that's more important than him, that we love and treasure more um, than him. So the first, well, one of the main commands that God gives to Israel, uh, the Israelites, that we call this the Shema. Uh, the Shema, it just, it's a Hebrew word that means to hear. Uh, so here's what God commands Israel, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Uh, Jesus says the same thing in Mark 12. They ask him, one of the uh, uh, scribes ask him, what is the greatest commandment? So of all that, all that God commands in the Old Testament, all that God commands in the law, what is the absolute greatest and highest command? And Jesus quotes this one. And so what he's saying is that God commands his people, God commands us that no one should get this kind of love uh, that only God deserves. God demands the highest and greatest love from us. He is our first love. And this morning, I, I just wanna ask the question, why? You ever, you ever ask that question? Maybe just you have the courage to ask, why does God command us to love him and why should we love him? So, so why should we spend all this time, all this energy, all this devotion loving a God that we've never seen before, um, who commands us in his word to love him? Why should we love God? When somebody asks you that question, um, why should I love God? Um, well, you, you, could go the, you could go the because God said so route. Okay, I parent like that sometimes. I have three young sons and I like to create work for them to do. And so I'll say, move that thing over there. And they do it. Now move that thing over there. And they do it. And they ask why. I say, because I said so. Because I'm bigger, I'm smarter, I'm more wise than you are. You can't drive, you can't cook. Any more questions? Right, dad of the year, right? I know that's, just, that's how I mess with them. But it is because I said to do this is why you should, you could say that. So if someone says, why, why should I love the God of the Bible with all of my being? You could say, because God said so. Um, the problem with that is one, that doesn't get you very far for very long with many people, especially skeptics and non-believers who aren't even sure what they think about uh, who this God is. Um, but the second problem with that approach is that God doesn't do that. Um, God reveals himself to us. God speaks to us. God saves, God heals, God rescues, God does all these things. God gives reasons for us to love him. So God never just says, you should love me and stop there. No, God reveals himself and God does all these things in our lives and God shows us why we should love him um, and what it means to give ourselves to him. So this morning, I wanna make a case for why you should love God. 
I want to make a four part. We could spend hours on this. I want to spend uh, just a few minutes on four reasons that you should love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, I'll give them to you first. Here they are. He is eternally self-existent. He is utterly unique. He is a perfect community and he is relentlessly sacrificial. That's why you should love him. Let me unpack those for us this morning briefly, uh, and then we will uh, wrap things up with some applications. So number one, here's why you should love uh, this God with all of your might, with all of your affections, with all of your delight, is because he is eternally self-existent. Now, I understand that that phrase doesn't cause your heart just to soar in worship and you bow down, you know, fall on your knees in affections to God, but the concept itself should. Um, So let me explain what this is. What does it mean that God is eternally self-existent? It means this, that God has no needs. And we gotta stop there for a bit. There is, God never has to go outside of himself for anything. God is absolutely eternally self-existent. So all that God is, all of God's being, all of God's power, all of God's glory, all of this comes from himself. So God never has to reach outside of himself for anything that would add to him uh, or somehow enhance who he is. It's all within himself. Um, So some of the theologians say, uh, use a phrase uh, that God is self-contained. And what that means is that his glory, his goodness, um, his perfections, his beauty, all of his attributes, all of his character, all of his uh, holiness and all of his perfections, they're contained within himself. They come from him and him alone. Um, here's how the Westminster Confession says that. We'll give the Presbyterians some airtime um, this morning in our, in our church. So God, they say it like this, that God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory in by, unto, and upon them. Now here's how the Bible talks about this. Jesus says this in John five, for the father has life in himself. He has life in himself. He doesn't go somewhere else to attain life or somehow receive life. He has it in himself. He is life himself. And he's granted to the son also to have life in himself. Here's how Paul says this to the, uh, in, uh, when he's in Athens. Uh, Acts 17, the God who made the world, everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man as all the other gods would, by the way nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You ever see that little phrase right there? As though he needs something. What does our God need that you could somehow as a human supply him that would add to him or somehow enhance who he is or add to what he doesn't already have? No, no one, Paul says, he has no needs, but he himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. And so what we're saying here is that God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is self-contained. This means God is self-justifying. God does not need anyone to take up for him. Um, God never has to hire a lawyer to come and speak for him and somehow defend him and build a case for him and somehow support him. God does not have any needs the way you and I do because this God is eternally self-existent. So here's how Isaiah, the prophet 
uh, rhetorically. The prophets are always asking rhetorical questions because they're mocking the other gods of all the nations. So here's what Isaiah says. Whom did, whom did God consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer is no one. Because this God has no lacks. This God depends on nothing but himself. This God is self-existent. We all have to go outside of ourselves for, um, for food and for water. And we all depend on something. Our parents, other people, our jobs, on healthcare, on medication. We all depend on something. This God does not. I mean, you realize how, how powerless you are over most of your life. Happy New Year. I, I don't know how else to say. I mean, you're, you're just, we're so powerless over our lives. We think that we're in control, um, but one thing happens. One thing falls through. We are utterly powerless over our lives. This God is not. This God needs no support group. He needs no therapy. He needs no counseling. He needs no medication. God never has to go away on a retreat and journal some stuff and then come back refreshed. That's not who our God is. And so all of his power, all of his strength, his goodness, his glory, all of, all of who he is, it is in and of himself. So what this means is that if every human being on the planet stopped believing in God and renounced him utterly, it would not diminish God or subtract from God at all. And if every human being on the planet actually bowed down and believed in him and worshiped him, it would not add to God himself at all. This God is eternally self-existent. And what that means is that you can, his perfections are eternal, that you can never reach the end of God. There, there's always more of God to discover and explore and think about and ponder. You can never master him. You can never figure him out completely. This God is absolutely beyond our control and our understanding. You can't plumb the depths of this God. Um, I love how C.S. Lewis captured this um, with Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've not read those books, um, you should be a Christian and go read those books. You should start this year. It's a, a great thing to work through. But Aslan is the, he's not a lion, he's the lion. Um, he comes and goes as and when he pleases. Uh, he's not safe, he's not tame, but he's good. And there's a place in, uh, in Prince Caspian, there's a scene where this little girl named Lucy, uh, she goes back to Narnia again. If you have no idea what's going on here, just hang with it, all right? So it'll, it'll all make sense soon, hopefully. Uh, but Lucy goes back to Narnia. She hasn't seen Aslan for a long time and she encounters Aslan again and he looks bigger. She, she sees him and it seems like Aslan has gotten bigger to her. Um, but here's how the story, I'll just read you a short, a short quote. Um, she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. And here's what Aslan says. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that last little phrase, I love that, because Lewis understood that you cannot exhaust this God that the more you grow in your capacity to know who this God is, the bigger you find him. God's not growing, right? God's not changed. Nothing's being added to God, but as your capacity increases to know him and to treasure him and to love him, it seems like God just gets bigger and bigger to you. That's what Christian growth is, by the way. 
that the more you grow in your knowledge of who God is, God just seems bigger to you. God seems more glorious and more powerful. You're more astonished at who this God is. That's what it means to grow in your love for him. And so what all this means is that all that you long for in this God, he is the source of those things. Um, You long for love. God is the source of love. You long for joy. God is the source. God is not just joyful. He's the source of joy. He is this ever flowing spring of joy and life. He's not just, uh, doesn't just have truth. He's the source of truth. All truth finds its starting place with him. And so you and I, we can never plumb the depths of who this God is. There's always more of God to admire, um, always more to be amazed of, always more to worship and treasure him. And that's one reason that you should love him because all that you long for is contained within himself. God never goes outside himself uh, for for these things. Number two, and similar to that, is he is utterly unique. Um, When the Bible talks about God being holy, that's what it often means. Um, Holiness is is not just moral perfection. Holiness means something different. Uh, So here's how uh, Moses sang about this for the nation of Israel. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Again, we have rhetorical questions here. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer is no one, because this God has no category. You, You can't define God and give two examples. There is no other God like this. There is no other being who is like this being. He is utterly majestic and holy, which means he's something different than we are. So yes, we are like God in a sense. We, We are in God's image. We reflect who this God is, but God is not like us. God is not just a better version than a human. He's not just an upgraded human with moral perfection. That's not how it works. No, he's not just different in, uh, in degree or in quality. He's different in kind. He is something altogether different than we are. That's why the angels in Isaiah 6, um, by the way, the angels, they, they are, they're, they're morally perfect. They're not sinful. They're not morally, uh, they're not, they've not fallen the way that we have. And yet they say to God that he's holy. They're the ones covering themselves and saying, holy, 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 because this God is just something absolutely altogether different than what they are and what we are. Um, This idea was brought home uh, years ago when I heard John Piper preach on this. Uh, There's a story where Piper, uh, he preaches on John, I'm sorry, on Isaiah chapter six, uh, where Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple. Remember that story where Isaiah is just, he's undone. He sees this, the glory of this God, this great prophet, sees God himself and he falls on his face and he feels undone by this. The angels are there, there's glory, smoke, all these things, the world just kind of blowing up it seems like when God shows up. And Piper says he wanted to preach on that text for that Sunday and give no application. You know, application in sermons is when we say, okay, here's what the text says. Now here's what you should go do. You know, here are some steps for your life, some, you know, some things to do in your marriage or some ways to handle your money. It's, he said, I want to give no application that we just lift the text up and let the text be what it is and make it as big as possible, um, he says. So he preached that. Uh, he found out later that there was a couple in his church that Sunday um, whose young daughter had, was being abused by a family member and they had just found out. 
And this couple, they walk in that Sunday absolutely broken and devastated. And, and as the, the months kind of went by, one day the dad said to, uh, said to Pastor Piper, he says, this has been one of the hardest seasons that we have ever in our lives gone through. But your sermon on Isaiah 6 has been a rock for us. A, a vision of God's holiness and God's character for us has been an absolute refuge and rock for us. And of course, Piper's like, see, just preach the text. You don't need application, just preach the Bible. That's all you need. Sounds like what Halim Sal would say. Just preach the text, that's all you need. But he realized on that, on that Sunday that the holiness of God, the otherness of God, that's what we need as human beings. That there was no application on how to walk through a hard situation with your child. That wasn't what the sermon was about. It was about who God is and God's glory and God's perfections and God's otherness. That's what you most long for. So the reason that you should love this God is because there is no one like him. There's a place uh, in Joshua 5 where the Lord shows up to Joshua, who's about to fight a, a, a big a, a battle. And Joshua says to him, are you for us or for our enemies? You know what God says? No. I'm not on either side here. I don't, I, this God doesn't choose sides. This God is. He is himself life and glory. He is holy. He, is, he doesn't choose sides with us. We go to him. We run to him. So all that you long for, it's, to, it's found in him. Because this God, there's no one who is like him. He is the most rare, most distinct, most unusual, most glorious, most matchless, extraordinary being in existence. And that's why he deserves your love. Number three, and you've heard this often uh, in, in sermons that God is a perfect community. God is a trinity, we would say. Um, now I get that this idea that God is, so the doctrine is that God is, there's one God and there's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're each fully God, yet they're distinct persons. I know it defies logic, and I teach on this all the time, and I'm pretty sure I commit heresy accidentally quite, quite often, um, but this is a hard doctrine for us to get our minds around, but I think what often happens is we think this is just some creed for us to confess or some doctrine for us to teach or just something for us to recite. No, this is a doctrine that we should delight in and find life and joy in that we know this God as one God in three persons, this perfect community, that's what we've been called into. And so we should, this is how we know who this God is. There, there is no division in this God. So for all eternity, the Father, Son, and Spirit have been in perfect rhythm and harmony, perfectly united um, in purpose and in love. There's no division in God. There are no fights in God. There's no gossip among them. There's no debates, no arguments. There's no passive aggressive comments on social media with them. That's not how God works. God is this perfect community of love. Um, the Father, Son, Spirit have always been in this perfect rhythm and harmony for all eternity. Um, that rarely happens in human communities, doesn't it? Like my, my three sons, if you just watch their, their life, everything is a fight. I mean, everything is a competition. So you should see our Uno games. Uno is a card game. You would think it would be just calm and quiet. Somehow it is a contact sport in my house. There's punching and there's yelling and there's bleeding and crying just in the first game. Everything is a fight for them. 
But you look at who God is, and there is this, this perfect community um, within God himself. This perfect unity and rhythm and love and affection. There's no division. There's no quarreling among them. Um, and Jesus tells us in John 17, um, he kind of pulls back the curtain as to what was happening before God made the world. You ever wonder what, what's, before God made anything, what is God doing? And Jesus in John 17 gives us a small glimpse of what's happening before God made anything. Uh, here's what Jesus says in John 17, five. And now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there's one clue right there. There's glory that Jesus has with his father before God made anything, there's glory. And then he goes on verse 24. Uh, says, I desire that they also whom you've given me, the disciples may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So what is God doing before God makes anything? Well, there's two things, glory and love. You have father, son, spirits in this eternal glory in love. That's what's happening before the world was. That's why the Bible says that God is love. Um, not that God has love or that God is loving, but that God himself is love. Because God has always been, has always existed in this perfect loving community for all eternity. That's why at the center of who God is, is this loving being. He is love. And here's the thing about all this. You and I are called into this, that we are called into communion and fellowship with this God. Uh, here's how Paul would uh, pray this for the Corinthians and uh, by implication for us. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, this is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So all those things that you, that you long for in your life, for comfort and fellowship, for love and for grace, not based on your performance, all of that, it's found in this God right here. This God calls us into this life, into this joy, into all that he is, into this love. Our God calls us into this, into himself in this way. And that's why, again, you should love him with all of your, your might. Last reason um, is that he is relentlessly sacrificial. So this self-existent God who is utterly unlike anything else in all of existence, who is a perfect community, who is three in one, is the most sacrificial being in existence. You realize that? This God has always been stooping down and rescuing and saving when God didn't have to, when God didn't need to, when God owed us nothing. This God has always been serving and reaching down. Grace has the idea of stooping down to someone. God has always been stooping down to us and loving us where we are and pursuing us. And the greatest expression of this is God giving his son to us. The son that God has been loving for before he made the world in utter perfection, what God treasured the most, God gave him up for you. What God loved and delighted in the most, which is, was his very own son in his, the perfect image of who he is, that's what God gives up for you. And I want you to, I want you to know how personal that, that is. So often the Bible speaks, um, when it talks about how Christ died for us, it often speaks in, in plural language or group language. 
Um, So he died for us. He died for the world. God gave him up for us. Um, He died for the church, for his bride. It's all plural or group language. Um, But there's one place where Paul uh, makes it very, very specific and very individual. Um, Here's what Paul says in Galatians 2. And I'm sure you've, you've heard this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, so often Paul would say, you know, he could say who loved us and gave himself up for us. And that wouldn't be wrong. But Paul says, no, he gave himself up for me. He died and and ransomed himself for me. Paul can say that and you can say that. You realize that you can say with utter confidence that Jesus Christ gave himself up for me. You, you get to say that. And so all that, that sin had, had stolen from you and robbed and stained and marred, Jesus Christ gives himself up for you and buys all that back and cleanses you and washes you. And what the Bible says, justifies you. You know what that means? You know what it means to be justified before God? Let me, let me tell you what it means. Um, so all of, all of life, um, you, you might would say, is on a performance then verdict system. Okay, so hang with me for just, uh, just a bit. So whether it's education, uh, whether it's your career, whether it's uh, military service, whether it's the arts or music or whatever, whatever it is, all of life is built on you perform and then you're given some kind of verdict. All right, you're given a paycheck, you're given a scholarship, you're given a trophy, you're given a medal, you're given an Oscar, you're given a ring, okay? You, you perform and you meet some standard, some qualification, and then the outcome is determined that you are now worthy, you're a winner, you've received this, you've won. That's how all of life works, okay? It's not wrong, it just, it just is, okay? So you don't get the ring until you win the game. Okay, so you don't get, don't give you a ring first, then you win the game. That's not how it works unless you're, well, I won't go there this morning, so never, never mind. So you get the idea, right? That's how the world works. The problem is that's exhausting sometimes. It's rewarding at times. It is exhausting and crushing at other times in our life. You perform, then comes the verdict. But here's the thing, in, in the gospel, it's just the absolute opposite, In the gospel, you're given the verdict first. You realize that? What it means to be justified is that you're given the verdict that God utterly accepts you and brings you into himself and looks at you as righteous and holy before you do anything. So the gospel just, it flips it over to where now God brings you in, God utterly and fully accepts you and smiles on you before you do anything for him. And it's all based on what his son, it's all based on the performance and the work of his son. And now God declares you based on his work, righteous and his and his child, his son, his daughter with whom he's now well pleased. That's how the gospel works. You get the verdict first. You get this well done first. 
And God is now pleased with us. That's what the gospel does. And all this is based on the utter sacrifice and relentless sacrifice of who this God is. This is the nature and character of our God. He's always sacrificing for us, isn't he? He's giving up what he treasures the most to rescue, um, to rescue us. And that's why you should love him. And that's my case this morning of why you should love this, this God. Why, why wouldn't we? If he's like this, why wouldn't we? Where, where else would you look? Where else would you run to? What else would you love with all of your being besides a God like this? And so whenever God says to love him, we should run with open arms to him. We shouldn't hesitate and be skeptical and ask questions. We should run to this God who has given us every single reason to love um, and to treasure him. Now, real quick, how do you do that? I'll be real brief on this. How do you love God? The way you love anything else, you think about him all the time. You, you rehearse who he is in your mind. You talk about him, you talk to him, you fill your imagination, you fill your thoughts with this God, you um, study and you contemplate who this God is. And then from that study, you sing praises to him and you express gratitude and delight in who God is. The way you love anything, that's how you run to and love this God. And I would just add to this, this all starts with his word because unless you have the word, you can't think the right thoughts about God. Um, you can't understand who God is and what God is like and what God wants from you and what God, uh, just the, the nature and character of who this God is. The word is what tells you. And so we begin every single year at the Austin Stone by calling our people to the Bible. But we do that so that you will love God more. So this, this year, would you resolve to fill up your affections with, with who God is in God's word to love him more? to grow in your love and understanding and worship and delight in who this God is, not to just check off some box, not to fill out some plan, not to impress other people, but to grow in your affections and your love for who this God is. Because here's the thing, with, without the word, we just project onto God um, things that aren't true of him. Unless you're, unless you're immersed in the Bible, meditating on the Bible day and night, you can't love God as he is. You'll just kind of fashion your own God. You'll think all the wrong thoughts about who this God is, but the Bible informs us. It informs our prayers. Um, it shows us how to think rightly about who this God is, how to trust who this God is, and ultimately how to obey and do what this God says. And so would you resolve this year to, to be in the word, to immerse yourself in the scriptures, to love this God more who deserves all of your affection and all of your delight. Let me pray for us. We're gonna sing, sing some more together. Father, you know how um, God disordered our loves can be. God, you know right now what is in us and what we actually love the most. And so, Father, would you reveal that to us? Would you, if there are blind spots, would you point those things out? And Father, would you cause us to just face the fact that there are parts of us that doesn't love you with all of our being? God, would you cause us to confess that? God, to own that and Father, believe with all of our heart that loving you is the only path to real joy in life. And so God, would you search us? Father, would you examine us and God, would you give us the courage to face the things that in our life that 
we know are above you in our affections. And would you gently and in the way that only you can, God, would you work to remove those things and replace those things with your son that we might treasure and delight in him all the days of our life. Father, we love you. We want to love you more, God. There's always room for us to grow in our affection and love for you, God. Would you cause that to happen? God, would you enlarge our hearts to love you? Help us to confess where our hearts are cold, where we're indifferent, where maybe we're skeptical, maybe we're just afraid. And God, would you fill our lives with a a fresh and new zeal and delight and love for you? God, you deserve it. God, we know that. God, you deserve more love from us than, than we often give you. So Father, help us to resolve in this year to, to open your word, God, not to just do a duty, but God, to find our delight in you. God, to run to you with all of our might, to love you more, to rejoice in who you are, God, to see your commands as invitations for joy, not just burdens, God. Your commands are not burdensome, God. Calls us to see obeying you as the greatest joy in our life. Father, we need you. God, this only happens by your grace, by your kindness toward us, God. So would you cause us in this uh, next season, God, in this next year, Father, just to love you more. God, you command that. And so would you give grace for us to do what you command, which is love you um, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.